This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. Uh, my guest on the podcast today is Kevin Davey, head brewer of Wayfinder Brewing. Welcome to the podcast, Kevin. Thanks for having me, Jamie. You know, if uh, if you've read Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, then you've probably read our August-September issue where we did a breakout brewer story on uh, Kevin Wayfinder along with a recipe for uh, Wayfinder's Relapse IPA. Um, if you've watched the Great American Beer Festival Awards, you may have seen him pick up a silver in 2018 for Oktoberfest or a bronze in 2019 for Hellas. Um, if you read our December-January issue of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, you might have noticed that uh, Relapse was one of our editor's picks for Best Beers of 2020. Um, so, uh, Or if you read uh, Kate Bernat's uh, critics list in that same issue, you might have seen uh, Wayfinder's Check AF in uh, her list of favorite beers for the year. And so uh, it's fun to be able to have this conversation. And uh, thanks, for, uh, thanks for joining me, Kevin. Yeah, absolutely. Pleasure. Pleasure is all mine. If you if you've been following social media for the last week and a half, you also may have noticed folks sharing out the story in the Washington Beer Blog and others uh, uh, about cold IPA that uh, references Wayfinder's approach. And so, um, you know, it had been this uh, podcast had been on my list of ones that we needed to do for a little while. And, uh, you know, after seeing all of this blow up. Uh, again on social media and with a strange kind of fury, I thought, "Hey, this is this is the time to to have the conversation." Uh, did that catch you off guard, Kevin? I, you know, we've been talking about it for like, well, we've been talking about the style and how to make it. I feel like we've been like, you know, projecting it with as much as we can, and then all of a sudden, the Washington Beer Blog posts it, and everybody decides to get grumpy. It was kind of surprising, to be honest. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to feel just slightly, slightly insulted that people didn't get so up in arms when uh, when we published the Breakout Brewer with all of this back in the magazine. But, you know, that is what it is. We're going to talk about cold IPA. We're going to talk about your approach to lager brewing. We're going to talk about even things like hazy IPA that you make with a decoction process and all the other strange and wonderful ways that you've found to make uh, compelling beers. Before we do that, as the brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling, GD Chillers has set the standard on quality, service, reliability, and dedication to their customers' craft. New this year, redundancy meets efficiency. GD's micro channel condensers are built with all aluminum construction, which eliminates galvanic corrosion using half the refrigerant of conventional condensers with fewer brazed connections translates to a lower GWP and less opportunity for leaks. Call GD Chillers today to discuss your project or reach out directly at gdchillers.com. Also, this episode is brought to you by RAR North Star Pills, a new base malt to set your compass by. RAR North Star Pills is crafted for brewers looking for a domestic Pilsner malt with low color and low modification. North Star Pills carries overtones of honey and sweet bread supported by flavors and aromas of hay and a nutty character. Suitable for any beer style, but particularly craft brewed versions of classic lagers like those that Kevin here brews. Uh, let Roar North Star Pills guide your craft by visiting bsgcraftbrewing.com or contact them at 1-800-374-2739. So, Kevin, we normally start the podcast off with a little romp through your history. Why don't you walk us through, uh, um, you know, what got you here 
uh, at, into your position now as head brewer of Wayfinder? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, well, I started off like a lot of people home brewing. Um, <clears throat> I lived in Seattle for about 10 years and I was a plumber and uh, built like a pretty intense brewing system and decided that, you know, I got the bug and just couldn't stop and decided to put myself through um, brewing school and change careers. So I did the World Brewing Academy, which is Siebel. Why would you leave a high income profession like plumbing (laughs) (laughs) for a much lower income profession like brewing? (laughs) Have you ever crawled underneath a house? (laughs) I've Uh, I've done enough plumbing in my own house to understand exactly why. uh, Yeah. Why you might might want to make that change. I was doing some sewer repair work and stuff like that. And it was just like, you know what? I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> it was sure, either get into sure. management and start my own company or something like that or jump ship. And I decided to jump ship. Well, plumbing uh, and brewing pretty close. It, you know, it's really helped me out in the last 10 years of being a brewer or almost 11 now. Um, so I went to the World Brewing Academy, the Siebel and Dumans in Munich program in 2009 and joined the Chuckanut Brewery in Bellingham, Washington in late 2009. And Chuckana Brewery, the, the school brewery. of Will Kemper. Yeah, I was, uh, I think I was the second brewer. I think the first brewery hired was Josh Freem. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, no pressure. No pressure. A whole bunch of hacks over there. No, um, <laughs> you know, we uh, we haven't run the episode yet, but it's coming up next, uh, you know, uh, next week uh, with uh, ABGB and uh, Swifty and uh, Amos yeah. from ABGB. And, uh, and Swifty talks about that school of Will Kemper. Um, yeah. And that uh, everything he's really needed to know about lager, he learned from Will Kemper. Um, so for those of you that are pod, regular podcast listeners, you definitely want to check that episode out. But um, it, I imagine that he was quite the one to uh, uh, continue your schooling on lager brewing under. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I consider myself a Will Kemper brewer. You know, he was the first one to teach me how to brew. Yeah. Um, I think that – so I, I worked there for two years. And um, we – you know, like, I, I don't know, we, we racked up a bunch of medals. We got small brewery of the year. Um, of course, that didn't stop when I left. <laughs> so I'm not, not going to say it was all me. But um, so I left and went to Firestone Walker down in California and decided I wanted yeah, to be that, a that small brewery that nobody's ever heard of. <laughs> well, at the time, there were only about 125,000 barrels a year. So yeah. not the gigantic 450 or 500. I have no idea how big they are. Sure. But they're up there. Um, and I, I mean, I loved it. It was, um, production work, 24 hour brewing in the middle of the desert. The one thing I didn't like, it was that it was in the middle of the desert, (laughs) but, um, yeah, I really loved it. I didn't really work out in California very well. Um, that's more personal reasons why we moved back to Seattle. Um, but yeah, that everything I learned at Chuck really prepared me for working at Firestone. Well, obviously Firestone was a, a far larger and more technical brewery because you kind of have to be at that level. Um, so I kind of feel like what Will Kemper did at Chuckanut was take large production brewing and do, you know, apply it to small scale brewing. Um, and that really worked really well. Uh, I just took that when I went, when I went back to Seattle, I picked up a job at the Gordon Biersch brew pub and ran the shop there for a few years. It's has since closed down, but it was um, my experience before that really prepped me to just be able to run run my own shop for a while. And 
really, uh, I think that it's funny because I think that it's, it sounds like way sexier and way more uh, fun to talk about the Chuck them out and Firestone experience, but the, the Gordon beer experience is really what got me prepped to open Wayfinder because we we're mainly a, a pub. Right. And uh, we make a lot of lager beers and just the logistics of getting all the malt in the door, getting it all in the tanks and making sure costs are in order. I mean, I learned all that stuff at Gordon Beers. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, what took you down to um, Portland for uh, Wayfinder? Well, there's three partners that started it. Um, Rodney Muirhead uh, is the guy who started Podness Pit, this uh, Texas barbecue spot here in Portland. He was going to run the food. Matt Jacobson, who is the founder of Relapse Records and Sizzle Pie Chains. It's a pizza pie place uh, chain here in Portland. Um, and then Charlie Devereaux, who was the one of the founders of Double Mountain Brewing. So the three of them wanted to open a lager brewery. And I got wind of that up in Seattle from um, friends at the Pine Box. And I just cold called Charlie and told him he has to hire me because that's exactly <laughs> what I want to do. <laughs> and so I don't know how I convinced him, but I did. And so I moved down in 2015 and or early 2016. And um, I, that's it. I've been running it ever since. Yeah, you know, as you all worked on the identity for Wayfinder, you know, if you started with the idea that we want to be a lager brewery, um, you know, where did how did you develop out, um, you know, a beer program from that point, uh, you know, and start to think about, you know, obviously working for other breweries, you know, they, you know, the other breweries you worked for each have a point of view. You know, Virus and Walker has a point of view with its lager program. Chuckin' It has a point of view with their lager program. You know, they're not slavish, you know, uh, reproductions of some, you know, fantastical ideal of what lager might be, you know, but they are very much, you know, real world interpretations of taking these these frameworks and building beers that are, are flavorful, but also kind of are signature that people identify with them and can certainly associate, you know, and pick out. You know, talk to me about your process of of working through that with Wayfinder and trying to, uh, you know, build an identity that was compelling, but also yours. Well, uh, a lot of this was, you know, Charlie's idea as well. And sure. I think the reason why he hired me is that we kind of had similar um, approach to this. And, and I wanted to really open a lager brewery in Seattle, and I just couldn't find anybody that to, to do it with. And it was too daunting to do by myself. Um I talked to one close friend who had at one point ran, uh, started and, and ran a, a lager brewery in Seattle. And we had this, we were at Prost, uh, this German beer bar in Seattle and we're drinking beers. And I'm like, I want to open this lager brewery, but here's the catch. No lederhosen, no pretzels, <laughs> no, no umpa music. And, and he's like, I'm out. That's what I want to do. And I'm like, ah, crap. So, I mean, what Wayfinder really is, it, I feel like most craft lager breweries, not Chuckanut, not ABGB, obviously, but a lot of ones that started had this really, I mean, Gordon Biersch is definitely, and, and, and this is a way of teaching people about lager brewing, is uh, being very German-centric, very... Um, um, kitschy? Kitschy. And I just didn't want to do that at all. I wanted to have IPA on tap. I wanted to have, I wanted right. to, I wanted to open up the pool and say like, Hey, you know what? Everyone's invited. And that was one of the things that we really focused on at, at Wayfinder was not just we were going to do half IPA, half loggers, not just do that, but also have a killer cocktail program, have a good wine program, have really great food. Um, if you're coming to Portland and there's one place to go and you've got a group of people, we don't want anyone to say they can't come to Wayfinder. 
So that was kind of well, the idea. Sure, sure. And you've done it with, um, you know, a pretty striking identity and a, a interesting signature uh, uh, visual kind of approach in addition <laughs> to the beer that uh, uh, really just feels cool. Um, we can talk more about that in a second. But first, the world of craft beer is a different place now. Margins are more important than ever, so why not lower your ingredient cost? Craft juice concentrates from Old Orchard are the cost-effective solution for your fruit-forward needs. Old Orchard produces high volumes of their retail juice brand, so economies of scale keep prices low for their bulk supply program. A little concentrate goes a long way, and you won't lose some of it through filtering like you would with purees. To start increasing your margins now, head on over to www.oldorchard.com brewer. Also, for years, Brewery DB has been the industry's only professionally curated source of brewery and beer information. In 2019, over 1 million taproom visits were made by craft fans searching for breweries on BreweryDB.com. In early 2021, Brewery DB will unveil an all new experience to help craft lovers get back on the brewery trail. To take full advantage of the enhanced marketing power of Brewery DB and to increase your taproom traffic, Visit marketmybrewery.com. That's marketmybrewery.com. It's easy and it's free. So, Kevin, as you and Charlie were starting to work through these beers, um, you know, talk to me about that process of, uh, you know, of what were those initial beers and where did the uh, inspirations start to come for some of those that became your uh, your cores? It's interesting. I think that like um, we definitely had this like brew pub approach where we wanted to have like a gamut of you know, pale ale, what fits this role, what fits the pills, sure. what fits amber, what, you know, and, and we've done a lot of that, but um, I think the most interesting thing was when we opened because Portland was kind of late to the game for the hazies, you know, like the East coast had really by 2016 fully embraced what they, what they were making. Sure. And Portland is a little bit of a lumbering beast that didn't come first from Portland. So it was not an early adoption for us. And so it with breweries like great notion and a few others that um, were really, were really doing this and seeing how hot it was, you know, we were opening up and I'm like, I have to do it. I have to make something hazy. Um, And I think that there's a lot of brewers that are like, very anti-hazy but i just wanted to be able to especially make those brewers that focus on lager beers like uh like you do also yeah i don't think that i don't think swifty's making a hazy ipa maybe he is <laughs> <laughs> they, they make pale ale they make a fair they make, they make a significant amount of pale ale yeah they make IPA maybe too. not hazy pale ale but yeah it's it's a completely different beast i kind of felt like it was a challenge you know um i right. have friends who work for craft brew alliance and being able to make widmer hefeweizen consistent haze is a uh from a production standpoint really hard to do building haze stability like a half is certainly a you know key importance for you know those folks uh you know brewing hazy ipa talk to me about you know how you approach um maintaining that um but also you know building a clean and drinkable beer because i know that you know part of the focus on wayfinder as a brew pub is not just selling cans to people to go but also being able to you know have, have drinkable beers that people can have more than one of in that kind of brew pub setting, um, you know, and of course, hazy IPAs being typically big, thick, sweet beers don't necessarily lend themselves to that kind of thing. Talk to me about building a compelling, but also, uh, you know, drinkable over multiple beers, uh, you know, approach to hazy IPA. I, I think that what separates us, and I, I think that we're lucky in this regard, because in Portland, do you have people that like hazy IPA that probably that some of them just don't like 
that very sweet, low bitterness hazy IPA. They still want all of that fruitiness, that jamminess, that opaque color, but they want it to be more drinkable. Um, there's enough of them that we can sell it. <laughs> so like, <laughs> I, our approach has always been lower, gra- lower final gravity. Um, I think our hazy IPA finishes at like two six and starts yeah. at like, I can't remember. We haven't made it in a while now because, <laughs> because of COVID. Um, but one of my, one of my things is that alcohol adds body. Um, if, even like our newest release, our Meritzen, it is on paper a very dry beer, but in the glass, it comes across very malty. And a lot of that reason is that you have the malt flavor from the ingredients that you use, but being able to process them correctly, you can get them dry and then the alcohol does make up the sweetness. It ends up being more of a balanced, I for me, a more of a balanced beer. Um, I feel the same way about cold IPA and I feel the same way about hazies. You know, ours are pretty dry for the for the total style, um, we're not throwing in a bunch of oats. We're not, I mean, we throw in some, we want to have some protein because that mouthfeel, that creaminess is incredibly important, but, um, maltodextrin, absolutely not other types of things to make them artificially sweet. No, we, we actually have the bitterness there. It's, it's not as high as a West coast IPA, but it's there. And, I have plenty of people in Portland have come up and be like, I don't really like hazies, but I like drinking your hazy when I'm at Wayfinder. So Port- Portland in, in particular and, you know, Portland and, and uh, or sorry, and Seattle together in this kind of, you know, Pacific Northwest approach um, definitely have, uh, you know, there's a house flavor and a house, um, you know, regional kind of uh, palette for IPA, which I absolutely love. I just love going to Oregon and tasting these beers because you, you know, you, there's a dankness and a weediness and, you know, a certain kind of, uh, and a bitterness, but a smooth bitterness that, that pushes on that kind of herbal diesel thing that, uh, you know, that people, you know, in the Pacific Northwest really love and embrace. And, uh, you know, and, and I love that, that kind of, regional variation happens you know it's different than san diego ipa um you know and it's a you know a a particular you know kind of uh you know flavor that that you find across a few other uh you know a number of breweries beers um you know for you brewing in the pacific northwest you know is that something that you consciously embrace or is it something that uh um you know is driven by you know consumer preference or is it more of a subconscious approach i think that for us, it is a tool. So we we make a lot of different IPA. I think our flower in the kettle, the hazy IPA we make is more grapefruit forward, more trying to be more tropical fruit. It's like Mosaic and Amarillo and Simcoe. There's yeah. a little bit of dank there, but it's not the lead character. Our relapse IPA is far more dank. Um, I really, when I'm approaching a beer, I want it to look different. I want it to smell different and I want it to taste different. I want them to be different gravity, different aroma, you know. And so... The diesel, that really, that dank diesel part, you know, we use that um, for some beers. And some beers we say, no, we don't want it. Um, So I think that people embrace it, but really the people that embrace it know which beers of ours to get and which ones to avoid. (laughs) Sure, sure. Is there an IBU goal for Hazy IPA that you, uh, you know, push towards? I think that a lot of people want to go for nothing and i think that you have to have some bitterness to balance i just don't think it i don't i personally don't think the beers taste good when there's no bitterness i had one last night and i'm not going to say what it was but it was a it was really a delicious beer and i couldn't get more than five sips through because it was just sweet 
and there's no bitterness. And I'm just like, well, this is kind of, it's it, the balance is off, you know, um, you need to have some. I think that when we got flour in the kettle analyzed, it was about 50. Um, now, the uh, a bitterness unit is, is a, it's a, sure. when somebody says it, like, <laughs> what do you mean? Do you mean calculated? Do you mean perceived? Or do you mean um, actually measured? So measured, it was right, calculated in yeah. 20, you know. Oh, okay. Um, you know, from a sensory perspective, sure, there are bitterness contributions, even from dry hopping, especially in these that aren't, that won't show up on an IBU test. Um, but they're certainly perceptible to people drinking them when you, you know, when you drink them, um, where do you think they sit? Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm shooting for 30, 35. It should be about pale ale and then it should be yeah. good forward and hop, well, hop aroma and stuff. It's funny because actually the opposite is sometimes true that the BU will, you know, will show up more because I remember like our Hefeweizen went at Gordon Beer. So at Gordon Beer, we had to send um, samples of our beer to an independent lab uh, because we were scattered around the whole nation and we were judged on four merits. One was, did you hit your first, the final uh, original gravity, your final gravity, your um, IBU, and then bacterial contamination. So if you've got... If you hit all four, then you were good to go. And I think that out of all, you had to enter all your beers that you were entering, I think it was every quarter. And if you needed to be, you, you wanted to be in the top 90 percentile of a company, right? You wanted to have the best numbers. But my Hefeweizen would always come up too bitter. And my boss would be like, well, you need to add less hops. And I'm like, literally, the amount of hops I'm adding, I would have to get 60% utilization for that to actually, you know, like... I don't know how it's measured. I don't know if it's just, you know, I'm not the best lab rat when it comes down to it, but eh. <laughs> I'm thinking all that wheat, the wheat mall, the polyphenol throws off the, you know, um, I'm sure I'm going to get a bunch of texts telling me I'm an idiot about that, but <laughs> like, it's not 15 BUs, man. It's seven. <laughs> interesting. Interesting. And in, in terms of, uh, you know, building body in that you step mash for that, that hazy IPA. Yeah. Uh, really stat mesh for everything. And it's more of a, um, holistic approach to brewing. Hmm. Uh, there are more than one enzyme active in beer. And I think that what we're trying to achieve in mashing is to create a base of maltose and maltotriose and a very little amount of glucose. Um, to do that appropriately, I think it takes step mashing just period end of story. I think you can do a good job single infusion, but you can do a better job without it. Um, I, it's 2021. If I were buying a brand new brew house right now, I would, of course, buy a mash ton instead of a mat, combination mash ladder ton, just because it has it gives me so much more control as a brewer to con, to make sure that um, my conversion is being taken place in an appropriate way. That's a lot of extra work, certainly in in certain styles, like uh, you know that that may not um, you know historically have demanded those kinds of things. From your perspective, you know there has to you, you take a, a scientific approach, even if you're not the lab ratiest of, of folks here. Um, you know what is the difference in a finished beer to you for say a hazy IPA step mashed versus not? Um, I think a lot of it has to do with yeast health. Um, a lot of it has to do with mouthfeel. Um, I, I want to get more technical than, um, it's like, I want to start at the very beginning. But, um, <laughs> you can get as technical are, as you want to. <laughs> one of those assumptions that, you know, doing single infusion mashing is a baseline, how we make beer. 
it's baseline how most home brewers make beer, but uh, I would say most brewers worldwide do not. Um, it is something built out of British brewing, uh, but Belgian brewers, German brewers, Czech brewers, step mashing is very, very, very normal. Um, if you look at that master brewers um, emblem, it's the mash tun with the bucket and the and the rake and I think a shovel. <laughs> it's because people used to mash in wood and it took, you would shovel over some into the kettle, you'd boil it and shovel it back and you'd shovel it or you'd mash it all into the kettle and put it on a fire and stir it until it boiled. You know, you had to go through all of those enzyme reactions. We've since, since the eighties, American malt has gone more and more um, enzyme rich and this is mainly because it's driven by big brewers using it to um, in not just, I mean, they don't really even need the enzymes for converting rice and corn because they're not even having to convert rice and corn anymore. They're using a syrup. Um, but it is because they're trying to have it go through the louder time as fast as possible. Um, I just think that beer tastes better if you can create more maltifs and break down those long chain starches better than you can with single infusion matching. And it sounds, I almost want to be able to draw, I can't, it's a podcast, I can't draw a picture, but <laughs> if, you're, if you're doing single infusion mashing, you are breaking down the starch into simple sugar. Yes. But you are also leaving longer chain B dextrins that could be broken down into more maltose. And the more maltose you create, the better the yeast health is because think of maltose as, um, really good for you to eat food and then glucose and fructose and stuff like that is just dessert and then maltotriose is really good for you but you know it's going to be harder to eat and then the other stuff is just kind of unedible if you make a smorgasbord for the yeast and it's just the sugar it's just dessert they'll never get to the healthy food and then they'll pass out early if you don't break it down at all then you're not going to have any fermentation that's bad um but if you can really focus on having high maltose, you can have very healthy fermentations with very little off flavor and very little uh, yeast problems. So it all it all goes down to that. For sure, for sure. How does that impact some of your malt choices uh, in your IPAs? We do use, um, we try to use a malt that is clean. Um, so American malt is exactly what I talked about, how it's, it's built to mix with sugar. And so we do. Um, the cold IPAs are mixed with adjunct and um, the uh, flour in the kettle, I, we don't actually add a sugar. That's one of the beers that we just don't with American because it does end up being sweeter. Um, it's kind of it's kind of hard to say. <laughs> <laughs> we use an American Pilsner malt main, mainly because it's a very good flavor that is a lot cheaper than using a German imported malt that we're just going to cover with hops anyway. Um, with the adjunct beers, I couldn't make a cold IPA like Relapse with a German malt. The German malt isn't built to convert that much rice or that much corn. Um, the American malts are. So I'm taking advantage of it. That's interesting. Let's talk more about uh, cold IPA since we're starting. We're, we're on the fringes of it and haven't really jumped in uh, you know, fully on that. Before we do, ABS Commercial is excited to be a part of today's podcast. ABS is a full brewery outfitter offering brew houses, tanks, keg washers, and small parts. As part of ABS Commercial's ongoing give back campaign, they'll be giving away an ABS Keg Viking keg washer in June. 
So make sure to periodically check the ABS Commercial Facebook page and find out when the contest opens up and how you can enter to win a keg Viking. So cold IPA, I, I was I, I was trying to frustrate everybody listening to this by pushing it back later into the podcast and not immediately, you know, discussing it just because I'm craving, uh, you know, uh, in that kind of way. Um, you know, but this is, uh, you know, there is a, a, a interesting and thoughtful approach to this. And it, you're right, it starts with that malt and it starts with, um, you know, this, you know, building a, a, a you know, grist base that's, uh, you know, more like an American malt liquor with uh, Pilsner malt and a pretty significant percentage of rice into the grist. Uh, yeah, well, we can even start with decoction or cereal mashing because sure. cereal mashing is not something done on small craft scale until the... Brewers Association redefined what craft beer is to allow Yingling in and August Shell, which is great. Um, but um, I think that there's this perception because craft brewers have pushed this perception that um, cereal mash and using adjuncts like corn and rice are there, like literally the words are to cheapen the flavor or to make the flavor less. I don't think that, I think that's a misnomer. I think that um, larger brewers originally, like when we, when, when American brewers were using adjuncts, they were using it to try to emulate something, trying to make the best beer possible. I don't, if you're using just pure syrups, yes, I, I will agree with you that that is going to lighten the flavor. It's a very um, processed ingredient. There's not much going on in just pure dextrose or just pure corn syrup. But if you're using a raw ingredient like rice or corn, um, we use like a cornmeal or we, we use flaked rice. I've been having a hard time sourcing uh, broken pieces of rice. Most of that's being turned into flour and sold for um, um, the gluten-free trend that's going on right now. Um, so find, just being able to buy it at all is really hard. <laughs> but So we're using uh, rice flakes. Um, but both of them, uh, like if you, look on, um, if you look on paper on like what, what is, it's not just sugar. Cor like corn and rice have protein, have beta-glucans, have everything the barley has in just different amounts and taking an American barley and mixing it with an adjunct, you end up with those numbers that you get with German, German malt or, you know, um, other types of European malts. And it can be really wonderful. Um, there's an element that using rice, it's a mouthfeel that we, that we talk about. It's pillowy. It's kind of marshmallowy. Um, we make an uh, adjunct brewed um, craft American lager in the summer called number six. It's 30% rice and the rest of it is American Pilsner malt. And I think it's wonderful. I don't think it's uh, I don't think it's there just to cheapen the flavor is really what I'm getting at. <laughs> um, sure, sure. I would like to plug a, another person's book um, that's going to be coming out. Greg Casey, who is a um, historian, he's, retired but he's writing he's either sure, Troy's dad. Troy's dad, yeah. <laughs> Troy's dad's writing a book about the American Reinheitsgebot. And right. so look out for that because that sounds very interesting. There was a push by the malting companies to um not allow adjunct brewers to use rice and stuff like that and still call it beer. Certainly looking forward to that. He's been doing a lot of historical work on it. Um, and uh, last week on the podcast, we had uh, uh, Dusan from Live Oak talking, and they certainly go through that cereal mash process with okay. their pre-prohibition pre Pilsner. You know, for him, it was uh, it's all about building that sparkly, beautiful, really just uh, um, 
you know, clear body to the beer, which is just harder to get out of barley while also maintaining that kind of flavor. Um, and they do it the hard way with, you know, with corn grits and, and a, a cereal mash and, and cooking through that process. Um, for you, you know, since you clearly do both, um, you know, how does the the rice and the and the corn differ in this kind of cereal mash process in the beers that you make out of those? Frankly, rice is really an amazing product because it the total amount of um, solubility of rice is incredibly high. So like it was one of the things that I was reading this adjunct book um, that was put up by the VLB. And one of the leading reasons to use rice when you're designing a, a brewery is because it takes up so little room. Like you mash with the rice and there's almost nothing in the spent grain that looks that resembles anything that you put in. At least when we're doing corn, there is bits and ends of pieces of corn that are stuck in there. Right. But, um, it's almost all soluble. It's, it's amazing stuff. Um, it is also really, 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 really fluffy when you boil it. So, uh, boiling rice and having boilovers is very um, is a big consideration. Corn is not as bad. Um, so those are two of the big uh, differences. Uh, you can get yellow corn and white corn. We've mainly been using yellow corn. We haven't noticed a big difference in color, although there is one. Um, it doesn't seem enough to matter. And as far as flavor difference goes. I personally, it's kind of hard. It's such, rice is such a subtle flavor, um, and then when you pillow, when you put a bunch of IPA on top of it, it's we're mainly looking for mouthfeel. We're not really looking for aroma or anything like that because it's gone. But um, I think that if I were looking mainly for that, I would be choosing, uh, be much more choosy about which kind of rice I'd get. Um, I've, I've been actually getting more and more into sake recently, and that flavor of rice is amazing. Like I think it, I, I haven't even come up with words to describe it, <laughs> you know, these, <laughs> because you know, it's, it's, I've spent almost my whole career talking about beer and, and how the different, different flavors and barley can come across. And I haven't really spent that much time on rice. And so that's something new in my horizon, but, um, one so of the cold, I, Cold IPA, sure. we've now got this grist base of what, 30 percent ish of rice or so. Mm -hmm. Where, uh, what is that? Am I right on that? Yep. Mm -hmm. And then, um, American Pilsner malt, you know, is the balance of this. Um, you know, talk and, and are there any special, you know, outside of that cereal mash piece of it? Are there any other concerns that, uh, you know, that you engage in, uh, you know, mashing through you know, your steps on this? Well, for one thing, that since you you are bringing rice or corn, depending on what you're going to use, you bring it up to a gelatinization rest. So you're really trying to solubilize all the starch, and then you boil it. So while we're boiling, or during that time, we'll actually mash in our main mash, very thick, um, at cool temperatures, about 36 Fahrenheit. I'm oh, sorry, 36 Celsius. Um, so about what is that, 95 to 100 degrees Fahrenheit, and um, We'll just have that hang out while the other cereal mash is boiling. And then when we add the cereal mash in, it'll be right at the pretty much the, the what we call maltose production rest, which is between 60 and 62 Celsius. Um, and that's when we're trying to really cleave most of the maltose with, with um, the high enzyme malt, high enzyme American malt. It is really, 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 really important to use an iodine test <laughs> whenever you're doing stuff like this. We found that um, some flaked rice products say that they're completely um soluble and uh ready to throw right into a single infusion mash and we found that that is not true that you have to boil them i'm not going to name names but 
that's we we just we started with rice flour because it was something that we could get and that worked really well but it was very dusty and so we tried to use um we ended up just using rice flakes and then tried to go like what what if we tried not to do the cereal mash like as advertised just mash it and see if the enzymes could break it all down we found that it didn't and that we ended up trying to we ended up borrowing some enzymes from a a local gluten-free brewery um to try to break it down at all and just couldn't. Uh, we didn't have access to the starch because I don't think it ever went through the gelatinization rest. So I've sat there for four hours at, you know, alpha rest temperatures and nothing. So Oof. that is, we ended up dumping it, but um, that is one of the things that you have to consider. Um, if you're going to use this product, I would, tr- or if you're going to try to use an adjunct, you have to make sure that your match is working. Um, not only because getting starch at the end, you're not going to get, you're not going to get your soluble sugar. You're going to have high final gravity. You're going to have haze. You're going to have contamination issues, all that kind of stuff. Have to get your conversion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Are there any other, uh, you know, uh, peculiarities to your mash steps or is it pretty standard other than that? Uh, pretty standard. Uh, we don't do a protein rest on those beers, um, mainly cause there's, it's very low protein. Um, but yeah, we'll do a maltose production rest, then um, kind of an in-between maltose and sacrification rest, and then sacrification rest, and then mash out. And that seems to work fine. Um, and then we, we move into um, boil, and we can start talking about hops uh, in your cold IPA. Um, talk to me about hopping strategies, you know, bitterness. Now, you know, certainly as Joe and I were tasting these um, and, you know, considering it, uh, there is a smoothness and, you know, there, there's a significant bitterness. I mean, it is, uh, yeah. you know, that cold IPA is, is certainly a West coast approach to, um, you know, uh, you know, to bitterness and it, and it doesn't, uh, pull any punches on that, but it is also an incredibly smooth, you know, bitterness at the same time. Talk to me a little bit about, uh, accomplishing that both with hops choice and with your strategies for timing addition and temperatures with hops. Sure. Um, so we're focusing on the clean bitterness and we want that to be around 70 BUs or even more is fine. Uh, it's more of a West Coast approach to IPA. Um, trying to get that bitterness in there with, you know, German Magnum or just isomerized alpha acid to get that base layer in so that when we add our final hops, we're not really isomerizing those alpha acids. We're just trying to impart the oil from it. Um we do a 10 minute rest, I'm sorry, a 10 minute addition, and then also a whirlpool addition. We do a significant 10 minute addition. I believe that there are a lot of components in hops that need to be boiled before, at least a little bit before the aroma of them comes through. Interesting. Um, like what? Uh, like which, which compounds? <laughs> yeah, well, I you know, what know. is... <laughs> but okay. it, it is a diff- there is a difference in... This is something that I, I, this is just my opinion, and I'm just trying to figure this stuff out myself. But um, with a lot of our German beers, we'll get amazing hop aroma and we'll boil the hops for 90 minutes or longer. And um, and not any last editions, no Whirlpool editions. And it kind of flies in the face of what we, what, you know, the, the traditional idea of that, well, if you boil it, all the aromatic pumps go up the stack. I don't know if that's completely true. What do you think that's down to? And, um, you know, is it down to the individual hop and the characteristics of that variety? Is that down to 
um, you know, peculiarities in your own brew system that may operate the, in a different way than other people's, uh, you know, brew. I mean, boiling seems to be boiling, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, is it rigorous versus gentle boiling or are there other components there that, you know, or, and then how would you, from a sensory perspective, if you've done it both ways, describe the, the sensory difference, um, you know, from doing it the way that you do it? Well, it, with the German beers, like Czech Sots in particular, which is not German, obviously, but like our, our CZAF, that, that where there's just about, I think out of the total hops, only 10% of them are added at the 10-minute addition. The vast majority are added at the very beginning of the boil, boiled for 90 minutes. And that is just, you know, seeing what Pilsner Kell does and doing that. Um, that is a lot of low alpha hop boiled for a very long time. So you're a lot of the flavor you're getting is from that polyphenol and um, what is what is soluble out of the hop. Um, so you're blowing off some of the insolubles, but you're definitely solubilizing a lot of the hop itself. Um, this would be a better question for um, Shellheimer and the people at OSU. <laughs> for sure, for sure. For a long time, but I can just tell you that like um, anecdotally, um, when I was at Gordon Biersch, I made this beer called Mosaic Pilsner. And my whole idea was, no dry we weren't allowed to dry hop it was gordon Biersch. so um i was like well i want to get that aroma but i want to do it on the hot side and so i used a lot of mosaic at the last 10 minute edition and then a bit in the whirlpool as well and my boss tom dargan at the time you know he flew up and i was doing a review on me and he, i poured him a mosaic pilsner and he's like how much did you dry hop this with and i'm like i didn't dry hop it tom and he's like oh fuck off you know i know you dry hopped it and i know you're not supposed to just tell me how much you did it with and I'm like, seriously, I didn't. I'm not lying. Uh, I think that you can get a lot of aroma from boiling hops. I know it flies in the face of everybody's perception that, you know, you can only, you know, you got to pretty much cold brew everything. But I, I don't I don't really know the chemical reactions going on, but I can tell you anecdotally it, it's true. Is so, there a point at which, you know, you say you, you add them at 10 minutes. Is there a point where if you were doing that at 20 minutes that you might lose more than you want to? Or, I mean, is there a, a time, you know, where you start backing it up to where you um, you start dropping off in terms of efficiency or solubility of these compounds that, uh, you know, that uh, they might uh, then volatilize instead? You know, I've never really like experimented with the, a 20 minute edition or a 30 minute edition. You know, we're, for Wayfinder, we've mainly done first word hopping and 90 minute editions. And then that's it until the last 10 minutes. Um, those middle editions, I, I just kind of abandoned. I just feel like if we're going to boil them, we're going to boil them a long time. And if we're not going to boil them, we're going to not boil them for a long time. <laughs> so I don't know. Um, I, I know that there was, especially when I was learning how to brew, there was this um, general knowledge that alpha acid is alpha acid. It doesn't matter where it comes from. And I think a lot of that is born from the big brewer identity of you're only getting seven to 10 BUs anyway. So it doesn't, you're not really going to get much out of it. I can tell you that like from our 11 BU um, number six, the the classic American lager, we use a, a blend of a lot of low alpha hops and we don't use any high alpha hops in it. And we boil them for a long time and, and they're there. You can smell it. Yeah. Um, so we take that approach for relapse and a new one we call chronokinetic. So um, we're using German Magnum, which I feel like it's a clean bitterness, and then an, an isomerized hot product just to get the bit bitterness up high enough to where we want it to be. Uh, when we first did relapse, it was kind of like this, how can I improve on what Brute IPA started, which was crystal yellow, really dry, 
You know, I liked, I love those ideas. I'm like, IPA could totally look stunningly different, you know? And I liked also how it was kind of like a middle finger to hazy IPA. It was like, <laughs> I'm going to make something crystal clear and yellow. And it's also going to be great in IPA. I wouldn't call it a middle finger. I would I, call it. Um... <laughs> not a middle finger, but you know what I mean? It was just like very contrasting. And I love. It was I a, love we can top. do juicy too, even in a clear package, you know, mm-hmm. and kind of, and also, you know, find the, almost the commonalities, even between white wine and that kind of fruitiness and hops and, you know, and pull it up there and make something that's strangely juicy, but still dry, you know, and uh, you're right. You're right with cold. I, this cold, I, IPA thing that you've been doing, you take that a little step, a few steps further, maybe in a whole lot of steps further than, than brewed IPA. Um, maybe not quite as bone dry, but, uh, you know, but still very dry um, and amping up that kind of, you know, juicy, but also bitter component uh, to a more significant degree. I mean, that's always been the kind of one of the drawbacks of brewed IPA still wasn't quite bitter enough to, you know, to, to be satisfying with that kind of, uh, you know, sweet and fruity approach. Yeah, I think that, you know, it kind of comes into that dry hop lager, you know, is kind of like those ones that dry hop lager always comes across that way where the bitterness isn't high enough to justify all the fruit that I'm smelling, you know, like whereas in most lagers are either not that fruity or they have some significant bitterness. And if, um, when we did relapse the first time, we the BUs, we were shooting for like 30 BUs. We we're trying to, trying to be like, well, what if we made a clear you know, adjunct forward hazy. And, um, you know, as far as hazy being like the hazy approach to hopping. Um, and I just thought that fell right on its face. I was like, this, this beer is so clunky. Um, so then when I went back to the drawing board and I said, well, let's make like, really what it is, is, you know, every, I think West coast is West coast IPA, forgive me, is, you know, typically Dex, you know, if you look at like plenty, it's a dextrose, Super dry, big hop aroma, very low caramel malt in its flavor, you know, like as opposed to Northwest IPAs that are like pretty caramely forward or like Midwest, you know, I loved California West Coast IPA when I, when I first started um, in the industry. And so I'm like, well, what if, what if we made something that was even just, just take that further, like, let's make it even clearer, let's make it even less caramely and let's make it even drier and let's make, you know, and so that's really that's why on the can we say it's Western than West Coast because we're just taking all the things that are already West Coast and we're just kind of, kind of pushing them a little bit further. We want them to be incredibly bitter. Um, we've tried to make this beer even like in the 6% range and it just doesn't work. I think it really works at the 7% range that you need that that booze background to, to stand up to the hops. And that's something true with like San Diego IPAs and stuff like that is that they just don't taste really great as pale ales. They're just, there's too much hop going on there for a pale ale. You need to have that booze in there. It's interesting. And it's such a, I love it because it's, we think about the same thing in terms of, you know, hazy IPAs that um, I find hazy pale ales to be generally much less compelling than a double IPA in that kind of hazy space. There's just something about the additional body and sweetness at that kind of 8% level that's better, uh, you know, and, and delivers on, the promise of these ingredients better than something at five or five and a half percent. Um, you know, and that's interesting that even in this, that one percentage point of ABV, you know, could have addressed the perceived sweetness and body of, of alcohol. And that, that could have such a pronounced effect for you. It's kind of like bacon without like the smoke or the salt, 
you know, it's like, it's just the fat, like, no, <laughs> you know, it needs, yeah. that. it needs that other part. The other part about cold IPA that we've been really focusing on is biotransformation of hops. So fermenting it on, fermenting our dry hop during, fermenting our dry hop. Um, yeah. And part of the problem that <laughs> most brewers have had in the last three or four years is hop creep. And I don't, I don't know right. how much you've talked about hop creep on the podcast, but um our approach with this beer is let's induce hop creep. Let's take let's take hops that we know will create hop creep and let's do them warm and create as much hop creep as we can and ferment it to as dry as we can. So relapse is a 15 Play-Doh beer, but it, it typically finishes at 1.8 or 2 Play-Doh. So incredibly dry. <laughs> yeah. But since the booze is there, it, the booze, the, the alcohol, I keep saying booze, the alcohol does add um, the body that it needs to still taste like an IPA. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, uh, we haven't talked about fermentation yet, but, uh, you know, let's definitely jump into that. Um, this is where it gets extra weird for you because, you know, the whole idea of IPA, you know, obviously the A and IPA is everyone knows what that means. Um, and you instead, uh, you know, ferment this with 3470, um, you know, lager strain, um, but you do it in a way that's not traditional for loggers, which creates, you know, just a, a whole bunch of questions and, uh, um, difficulties in defining things. Um, talk to me a little bit about that fermentation approach and why you've chosen to do it with a, a lager strain at a higher than normal temperature. Uh, well, I, I will, but I want to say this first, um, IPA, IPAs are not sent to India through the East India Trading <laughs> Company. IPAs aren't pale. IPAs aren't IPAs aren't classic English. I mean, an IPA can be red, it can be black, it can be white. An IPA can be sessionable. It can be it can be boozy. An IPA can be a barley wine. An IPA can be sour. An IPA can be um, Belgian. And I, I mean, like, name some things that an IPA can't be. An IPA can definitely. Uh, oh, be and I, IPA at this point, the the letters IPA simply mean to consumers this has hops in it. Like lots that's all it means. That's all it means. It's it has all, lots of hops in it. Like you and know, everybody, everybody like getting mad at cold IPA because I'm using the word IPA as a marketing term to sell, tell people this tastes like an IPA. Um, Cause it does open up a relapse IPA and nobody's going to sit there and drink and go like, Oh, this doesn't taste like an IPA. It's too much like a lager. It's like, come on. <laughs> an IPA drinker. It, oh, I agree. It's totally silly. I mean, and, and, I don't fault anybody for using these kinds of shorthands that consumers understand because at the end of the day, you know, styles are marketing. It's a way of, of telling somebody that if you like this thing, you might like this thing. Also, if you like this other thing that you've had, you might also like this thing that we make, you know, that's the entirety of style, you know, is building this kind of connection and commonality. Um, you know, we as Americans have this real bent towards taxonomy and wanting to hyper classify in order to build a, an understanding here, you know, but IPA from, for a consumer really just means, oh, that's got lots of hops in it. Yeah. And so, I, you know, I think you can look at it from a, like a scientific definition, like, is this brewed with Saccharomyces pastorianus? Is this brewed with, uh, you know, Saccharomyces cerevisiae? You know, is it one of, it's got to be one of those two and that's the defining factor. But, you know, it's it's the reality is that it's so much different than that because so there are classically beers too. like um, right. there's a lot of there's a lot of beers on the market that market themselves as ales that are using lager yeast. 
And there's a lot of loggers on the market that market themselves as loggers without using logger yeast. So if you're going to, I don't know, like I'm just being honest, <laughs> but right. you like, you can look at a single defining factor, but I think that when you come up with a definition, it's gotta be, you have to look at it from a multifactored standpoint. Is it, is it an ale, but it's been lagered? I mean, it's some sort of hybrid. It's really doesn't taste like the ales that people might expect things to taste like. You can keep telling me that a Kolsch is an ale, and I understand that on a conceptual level. But if I'm suggesting it to someone to drink, if they like lagers, they're probably going to like the Kolsch more than they're going to, you know, you know, even though it's an ale. You know, being able to draw these connections for people, for consumers that may not have the same kind of information and depth and background in beer styles yeah. you know the the you know beer the yeast genealogy and everything else like it's these become weird pedantic arguments that we in the brewing world have with each other that are so disconnected from reality um but i, I pr appreciate that you are approaching this from a consumer standpoint like this tastes like a cold ipa you know yeah um, and if you like ipas this is the beer you're gonna like this because it's kind of like that it, it's so funny because it totally mirrors the metal community where, you know, like what is, what is, oh, they're not really death metal or they're not really like hardcore or whatever. You know, it's just like people just get on these like semantic. It's just like, is it fucking heavy? Yeah. So it's heavy. <laughs> you know, like, you know, our debating that is less interesting, I think, and less productive for us than understanding the kind of creative process and celebrating the interesting things that are possible when we explore those intersections. And it's oftentimes the, you know, whether it's chefs or whether it's musicians, it's those people that are exploring those intersections of things that may somehow feel clashy or people haven't put together before that create interesting new possibilities and start moving the conversation forward. And so, um, you know, again, rather, I think you're right, rather than debating these old definitions, Hey, let's look at how we can fuck with all of those things and make something <laughs> super cool. You know, yeah. if you're going to be a hip hop artist and you can, you know, sample, uh, you know, metal tracks and throw down anthrax in your public enemy beat and build a killer hip hop tune with anthrax, uh, you know, behind the beat, like, that's amazing and it makes yeah. for a great song it doesn't fit in any other idea of genre that we've had before but it doesn't make it invalid it's actually a you know the yeah anyway i can go on that forever so yeah I'm, I'm with you here i'm with you it's so okay we've done cold ipas with a lot of we've done them with coal yeast. the whole the whole premise is we're trying to do like the mark the um we sit down and so i'm trying to make this beer we're trying to make something that's west coast western than west coast so what can be more drinkable, more hop forward, more Whenever clean. you say Western than West Coast, I think Rob Zombie, like more human than human. And that's, that's, that just runs through my head. That's fine with me. I think it's a cool song. But um, yeah, like uh, I think that, you know, we were trying to keep the like the one thing that I don't like about a lot of hazies is that people are like, oh, this has such a great hop aroma and you smell it and you're like, actually, this has a whole lot of ester aroma and there's barely any hops aroma. <laughs> like, I, I don't smell, I don't smell mosaic on this. I smell London 3, you know, and kind of a trouble, troublesome London 3 or something like this. I think a lot of um, people who are kind of newer into beer and they, they get more aroma equals good. Um, and that's usually because they're steering toward IPA and IPA is more aroma and more flavor. And so that's good. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. As, as people get more and more into any of the thing, anything, especially beer, 
they're going to understand the more nuanced aromas, more new nuanced um, uh, categories of the of the product. But what we're trying to do is not make one, not make an ester forward beer. We're trying to make a hop forward beer, and so trying to get the esters minimized and still get the beer done in an in a ale timeline. <laughs> you know, like we found that fermenting it with um, a lager yeast and fermenting it warm worked great. Um, as far as cleaning a pop creep, even better. Um, and um, getting it super dry also. Uh, so we've tried Kolsch yeast and we've tried Chico before. And Chico cold, cooler ferment ends up throwing too much sulfur for the beer, I think. But um, I think that fermenting lager warm, making this kind of like, I know I've mentioned it as like kind of like a malt liquor IPA, but it's kind of like malt liquor cream ale. Oh yeah, we're talking about ales. Is does cream ale equal an ale because it's made with water? <laughs> but um, um, it's kind of like it's funny. Ambiguous. Yeah, we're we're running a theme here because again, last week's episode with um, with Dusan, you know, they they brew Grudzitsky, but while the Poles have traditionally brewed that as a kind of lagered beer, you know, with ale yeast and, you know, specifically to dry, you know, dry, cold temperature to drive fermentation ester down, you know, Live Oak decided to brew that as a lager so they could get the same, they get the right character out of it using, you know, th that process that works for them. And I mean, frankly, like, the flavor should be the goal, not, you know, the, not the, uh, definition of, of the, the yeast that gets you there. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, I, it is just semantics. I think that, I think it's personally, I think it's kind of a little lazy to judge something based on whether it fits into a category or not, instead of just trying it and seeing if you like it, you know, beer. I mean, at the end of the day, beer needs to be fun. And when you see the beer, marketed as cold IPA, you know exactly what it's going to be. It's going to be hoppy as heck, and it's going to be crisp and easy drinking. That's what the cold word means, and IPA means the other part. You know, it's really, it's not very complicated. Um, I, I think gone are the days of, um, remember when Stone used to have like those massive descriptions on the back label? Um, I think gone are the days of those, because I just, with the presence of the internet and everybody has a computer in their pocket, like we don't really need to over-explain everything. Like people can come up with their own ideas of what our beer is you know all we really need to do is project what we're trying to do and what the beer is is trying to be and then let people decide for themselves yeah so let's talk a little bit more about this kind of fermentation process you you um you know working on biotransformation as you mentioned and doing that with uh, relatively warm pitch somewhere in the 60s you know uh, warm pitched 3470 and then biotransforming lager yeast which is awesome and fascinating and bizarre and weird so talk to me a little bit about uh you know about what you do with that well um i find that biotransformation works really great with london 3 especially like with those ale yeasts i think you get a, a different depth for like and it, it's so yeast dependent it's so hop dependent um so we're i'm still learning that part of it i know that like gosh like galaxy hops on the kettle maybe i don't like them galaxy hops day three dry, dry hop on london three wow they really shine um i think that's it's going to be yeast dependent too. So what we're doing is with relapse, it was focusing on like 
a lot of classic sea hops. So it's Chinook and Cascade and Amarillo. It's really, um, or Amarillo, Oregon Amarillo, trying to get that, that dank part in there too. We wanted to make it familiar. We wanted to make this a beer that people, it looks different. It smells big, but like we wanted to like, you, you take a sip of it and it's like, oh, fuck yeah, this is just a classic IPA. So um, we'll end up fermenting this beer at 65. And when it's about a Play-Doh to the end of uh, fermentation, we'll dry hop it. We'll get the yeast off the bottom as much as we can. There's still a lot of yeast in solution. We'll dry hop it carefully. <laughs> and then close the tank up, put it at 15 PSI, and it will ferment on the hops for three or four or five days. And it'll drop another Play-Doh in gravity at least. Once it is at final, we'll chill it down, fine it, filter it, put it in a bright can it up. So well, we did a couple of things. Um, the whole approach to that side of it was something that we took from um, our approach to Italian Pilsner, which... Um, we did this thing called dry hop kreutzening. So um, I would ferment our Italian Pilsner to completion, lower it down to 45, be able to harvest the yeast for the next beer. Meanwhile, we'd have a Czech Pilsner or Helles or a German Pilsner up to high Kreutzen. Once that was uh, on about day two, day three, um, when it was really rocking and rolling, we'd pull a couple kegs off, put it into the Italian Pilsner, dry hop it, Put it up to 15 psi and ferment it on the rest of the on the ferment on the newly fermented Kreutzen. And so both approaches, what we're trying to do is minimize oxygen pickup. So if we we know that by dry hopping, we're going to add oxygen into the tank, um, it's just a no-brainer, it's gonna happen. So by having fresh fermenting lager yeast, we minimize it. <laughs> you know, because the yeast will right. it'll scour that oxygen, right? Bingo. And then the other part is we're actually carbonating the whole beer that way too. Um, by the time it gets to the bright tank, we bump it up a little bit in the carbstone if we miss it, but for the most part, it's carbonated. And biotransformation, I think that it does, I think the dry hop does come across different um, when it's fermented dry hopped um, than, than when it's not. What else was I going to say about that? <laughs> uh, well, talk, talk to me, about, I mean, with the 3470 lager yeast in particular, you know, obviously you, um, biotransformation is going to vary from yeast to yeast. Um, when you are you know, working in, with the, the biotransformation effect with that lager yeast, um, how would you describe it from a sensory perspective, how it differs from, um, you know, say, uh, you know, finishing that fermentation before you dry hop or also compared to something like a more expressive ale yeast biotransformation? You'll have to remember that, like, most of my career I've been making lager beer other than that year at Firestone. So, like, yeah. we, we really, I mean, this is all kind of, like, um, newer to me. I haven't done a lot of uh, brewing with a lot of different dry hops, a lot of different yeasts. Yeah. I know that if I were to ferment a lager out completely, like, say I were to make an IPL, ferment 34 at, like, 50 degrees Fahrenheit until it finished, um, chill it down, get the yeast off of it, add my dry hops. I'm also going to add oxidation at that point, too unless I come up with a much better way of dry hopping um, than just dropping the top of the tank. And now we're a pretty small brewery, so we can't really afford that. Then it's going to also, since we're doing that cold, um, we're not going to extract the same things that we would fermenting it warm. So that's the other reason that we would ferment warm or dry and dry hop warm too, is that I think that we're going to get more off of those, all off of the hops than we would when we would do at a cold temperature. And I think that's one of the reasons why IPLs for, for me, never really came across as wonderful as that 
um, the cold dry hopping wasn't always, it, it'd be better if you did like a warm dry hop and cold dry hop, you know, or, um, or maybe just no cold dry hopping. <laughs> so <laughs> it just doesn't, uh, you know, from an extraction standpoint, doesn't, uh, you know, I don't think you just, as much. yeah. Yeah. Um, is it not as much or is it, it certain characters also not as much? I think you get a lot more grassiness out of the colder dry hop. Um, okay. I, I haven't done it very often. So a lot of that's just going to be trying somebody's beer, asking them about it and, and then making a lot of logical leaps. So I don't really like to like say, this is a hard and fast answer. Right. Right. Everybody's going to have to figure that out themselves. Is that one of the reasons why you've chosen to not call your beers IPLs because of this association with it? Now, and I should, I'm, I know I'm setting you up for this question. Yeah. I hate the word. I hate the term IPL. <laughs> I think it's a terrible, terrible, you know, descriptor for any kind of style. I, I would much prefer to call something a hoppy lager. There's no regionality of IPL. You know, it's not like, oh man, everybody in upper, the upper peninsula of Michigan, where they're all just making these lager IPAs and we don't know what to call them. Let's call them IPLs. You know, it's, that was never a thing. Right. Um, I don't really like, I don't like, so when we were, we were doing this, we knew that when we opened Wayfinder, we knew we wanted to make a hazy. We knew we wanted to make a West coast. We did both of those things. Um, I wanted to have a third IPA or a fourth IPA that we could come out with. And I didn't want to do an IPL. I didn't want to call it IPL mainly because I think the consumers have already decided that IPL is a clunky term and that, Frankly, even if even if I feel like what we're what I'm trying to achieve with cold IPA is categorically different than what IPL is, but aside from that, I just don't really like the term. Um, so because it doesn't really convey to a consumer what the beer is as much as cold IPA does. Right. No, today you know that term IPL kind of gets lumped in with everything from contemporary you know pilsners the kind of Highland Park, Timbo Pills, you know, hop, very, very contemporary hopped Pilsners, um, you know, st you know, straight through to Italian Pills, you know, and, and the lines between these kinds of things are blurry. Um, but when you drink Relapse, like it drinks like an IPA. I mean, it really, yeah. you drink it like you'd think, okay, this feels like an, I this is very abjectly different as an experience than drinking one a hoppy lager that's in that kind of uh, category. Yeah, I mean that's mainly that. Like, if you, I, I really like some of those beers that you mentioned. By the way, like the Highland Park beers, absolutely fantastic and, beers. I, I'm so I'm not. By the way, I'm not. You know, saying IPLs are a bad category. I just it didn't work for me. So I would love us all to have better language for this. That's more compelling <laughs> to consumers. There, anyway. there, Sure, there's re there's regionality. I think it's I think that like being able to you know protect Kolsch, protect Champagne. Sure, I think these sure. are these are important things. Um, there's a, a cultural significance to some of those things, but also in the land of the free, we can kind of do whatever we want to. And really, what we're trying to do is just like you say, we're trying to convey something to to somebody of what I'm, I'm trying to sell it, you know, I'm trying to make sure that somebody wants to come back and buy some more of it. Um, cold IPA, IPL. I don't care if somebody wants to call it an IPL or a cold IPA. It doesn't really bother me. I, you know, I've, I've seen some people comment like, well, I had this one IPL that fits your category. It tastes just like what you talked about. So is that a cold IPA? And I'm like, I don't care. <laughs> it's fine. If they call it an IPL, then it's an IPL. I don't know. Like it, it 
everybody, it's beer. It's supposed to be fun. <laughs> like just have a good time. If it, if it, if it, don't let it get, don't, don't get mad about it. It's fine. It's not a big deal. <laughs> sure. Sure. We're going to have to, uh, you know, post the trigger warning, uh, with this podcast. Uh, you know, if you, if you are a diehard, uh, and, uh, you know, your identity as a brewer is tied in with, uh, you know, specific styles and strict adherence, then this episode may not be for you. <laughs> oh, it, can be, it can also be kind of like, we really push this BJCP guideline. Like a lot of people in our industry, like this is how things are. And it's, uh, it, it, the truth of the matter, everything's far more fluid than there. There is very little structure to really anything, but especially beer, like beer is all over the place. Um, style, yeah. Style guides are descriptive. They should not be prescriptive. And, yeah. uh, you know, they've been developed to describe families of beers. They are not meant or designed to be, um, you know, definitive tomes on what people should brew. Um, that kind of creativity has always been up to brewers and brewers throughout the history of brewing from the very earliest days have always changed and adapted um, and pushed those kinds of definitions to, you know, to make things that are compelling to consumers. And, uh, you know, that's the end of the day. We want people to make good things that we enjoy drinking and that's it. Yeah. Well, Kevin, what's, um, you know, we're, we're getting on in time here. What, uh, you know, what's next for, for Wayfinder? Obviously you just got through, uh, you know, days without power last week and some crazy weather. The whole country is dealing, you know, from the South to Oregon dealing with, uh, you know, you know, these ramifications of nasty stuff. Why in the meantime, we're trying to deal with COVID and kind of seeing a light at the end of the tunnel, but certainly not being there yet. Um, you know, what's, what's on your near horizon and what's on your far horizon? Uh, well, we have some new tanks coming in in the next couple of weeks, and that's going to really increase our capacity. So I'm very excited to say that there'll be more CZAF and Hell and other of our great lager beers that aren't cold IPA, maybe more cold IPA too, but um, on the horizon. Um, I bet you secretly make those with ale yeast, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> I, I've, I've met a few people. So some group or, or Quike. Quike. You can you make those lagers with Quike. Uh, yeah, maybe. Uh, like, yeah. I know some brew pub brewers that would use their ale yeast cold to make their sure, October sure. And really, whatever. It wasn't super authentic, but that's fine. I'm I'm really excited about growing where our team's growing a little bit. And um, man, we're, it's been funny this year that we've put, we took a big brew pub, but we were able to pivot and go into complete can sales and expand markets and grow as a company even during these hard times it's i'm very excited and what i've been <laughs> what we've been doing is taking all the beers that we made in the last two years before covid and just go okay let's put them into cans and see if they if they work and it's been awesome because they've been totally working like <laughs> we never thought a smoked but a smoked lager would sell one <laughs> can. we sold that we could have made two tanks three tanks of it it would like there was so much customer demand for it it was amazing for a smoked so, lager so everybody out there buying our beer, I just want to say thank you. <laughs> we, sold our, we sold all the smoke lager. We we could have made probably twice as much Oktoberfest this year. We make a, a Wiesen style fest beer called Freiheit. And it flew right off the shelves. And I remember like our, Lindsay, our sales manager, she was, she's really nervous. It was like her, the first Amber beer that she'd have to sell. She's like, I don't know what I'm going to do. And then like she put the email out there and it was gone. So... <laughs> I'm so stoked that we get to do that kind of stuff and we get to do more of it. Um, uh, this, this spring we'll be doing some alt beer. We're going to try to do a malt liquor with the band Red Fang this summer. 
our Kolsch is coming back. And then also the number six this summer. I'm really excited for our patio to be open again and um, floating down the river and getting back to Oregon summers. Sure, sure. Well, uh, yeah, thanks for uh, for talking to me about cold IPA and a few other things. G&D Chillers is the brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling. Set your compass by raw North Star pills. Drive better margins with craft juice concentrates from Old Orchard. Take advantage of the enhanced marketing power of Brewery DB and follow the ABS commercial Facebook page. Find out how to enter to win a keg Viking. Of course, if you'd like to support this very podcast, go to beerandbrewing.com. Click on the subscribe button, and if you're a pro brewer, consider our new all-access pro subscriptions that combine both of the magazines, exclusive online content, and more. Uh, Of course, if you're a subscriber, you can go back to that August-September 2020 issue of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine and check out the uh, the full breakout brewer story on Kevin Wayfinder, along with the, the recipe for Relapse IPA. So, of course, you should go and do that. Um, Kevin, if people want to learn more about Wayfinder or uh, try to drink your beers, where do they find you on the internet and in real life? Uh, well, we're in um, the Central Eastside Industrial District of Portland, Oregon. A little clumpy term, but... Um... We are ava- I think we're open right now only on Saturdays. We're still waiting to open up the restaurant. Um, but uh, but you can check us out on wayfinder.beer. Um, if you're in the local area, you can uh, purchase uh, right there. Or you can go through Road Beers. Um, our beers also go through Tabor. So if you're outside on the East Coast and stuff like that, you can find some of our beers there. And ask your Tabor people to start buying cold IPA because it's such a cool thing. <laughs> <laughs> cold IPA. It's the trend. It actually is a trend. I've had other brewers that have uh, started brewing it. They've, they read the story and uh, and so they've, they've sent us some and we've tasted some. Um, maybe it's a thing. Maybe uh, maybe it just becomes your thing. Who knows? You know, um, maybe people will call it IPL. I hope to God we can get away from that and get onto a term that's more consumer friendly like hoppy lager, which just seems to you know describe things in a better way. But I digress. Um, Kevin, thanks for joining me on the podcast. It's been fun to talk to you about brewing. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, cheers. All right, cheers. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.com.